we've been devoting our Sunday nights to the, to the subject of worship, to the understanding of worship. This is something that I felt I needed to do before I came here. You might remember I, I made a list and you passed it out of several things that I thought that I would do that needed to be done that, that I had on my list. And this, this is one of the things on my list I, I wanted to accomplish. I wanted to lead you uh, to worship. And so whenever I've given leadership in the church, I've always given it from right here. I don't get a group off somewhere and say, this is what we need to do. I always try to be open and upfront and give you my sense of direction the church ought to go. So I want to be upfront with you, uh, letting you know that I hope we can change some things. And one of the things that we, one of the places that may begin to show up is right here on Sunday night, because I think that Sunday nights are a wonderful opportunity to reach out to our community. I know people are gone tonight, even our people are gone, but where do people go on Sunday night? They go a lot of places all the rest of the week, but on Sunday night, people are at home. So we have a marvelous opportunity to reach out to people on Sunday night. There are very few churches who even have church on Sunday night, so we're one of the few who gives people an opportunity to come and worship. So I hope to, to, to do that, and maybe I can, along the way, help shape your heart and, and shape our worship. Well, over these weeks, uh, what I've tried to do is to define worship. That's where we started, defining worship. And then I suggested to you, and I, I based it on Scripture, that uh, we ought to be defined by our worship. Uh, and we see that, uh, the scriptural example of that at Mount Sinai, and then again mentioned in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. And then we, talk about, we talked about defiling worship. Not everything that we call worship is worship, nor does it honor God. And so it should, but not, it does not always, and we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, tonight. And then we went from there to talking about devoted worship. Devoted, passionate worship does not have its beginning in here. It has its beginning in our own private times with God. And if there is no worship there, there will be no worship here. And I shared with you that the standard for devoted worship is the great commandment. Jesus said, the greatest commandment of all is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. And you will not worship a God you don't know. And you will not long worship a God that you don't love. Tonight I want to talk to you about display in worship. Now that might not be something you think about, but I want us to think about it tonight and what I mean by that is the visible expressions of worship reflected in our posturings and, and the motivations behind them. Now, uh, it's my desire for us as a church to move beyond receiving information about God to experiencing God. I want you to experience Him in your daily lives. I also want you to experience Him in this place, and I want you to know this place as the place of His presence so that this place becomes holy ground to you. No place is holy if it is not sanctified by his presence. And here's the first point in the message tonight. I believe that a place once 
sanctified by his presence, sometimes needs a refreshing of his presence so that new generations might know what it is to stand in or experience some measure of the manifest presence or the revealed presence of God. And my great concern as we go through the motions of worship is we have generations who are not experiencing God. I think that's one of the great tragedies in some of our churches today that we have people who don't know what it is to be in the Lord's presence. They, they've not experienced that in church. And so, by the way, that can't be manufactured. Brother Doug can't manufacture that. I can't manufacture that. But that is something that we need to long for and pray for and anticipate. Now, there are several words for worship in the Bible. And we go back to sort of where we started all this. The very first word for worship in the Bible, the first Hebrew word for worship found in Genesis chapter 22 is the word shaka. And we talk about shaka worship. And it means to bow in presence of another in recognition of that person's greatness or glory. We talk about display in worship. One of the reasons that we bow our heads when we pray, that's shaka worship. It ought to be from our hearts, a bowing of our heads in, uh, in, in recognition of God's greatness. Now, I have known people, I've had staff members at my church that said, now everybody just pray with your eyes open. And look, I, I really have a problem with that. I really do. I can pray with my eyes open when I'm driving. And I can pray with my eyes open when we're asking the blessing and I'm looking at a grandchild. But when I'm really wanting to pray and I'm really wanting to be close to the Lord, I feel like I need to bow my head. It is an act of reverence. It's a display of our worship to God. It was for Shaka worship that Abraham and Isaac went to Mount Moriah. It was to hold a sacrifice. But the word that Abraham used to express it was this word Shaka, which meant to bow low, acknowledging God's greatness and glory. Now, the second expression of worship in the Bible, the word worship is not used in that particular spot, but the second expression of worship in the Bible was singing and dancing. Wow! In the Baptist church, singing and dancing. And uh, uh, that first singing and dancing took place when the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea. Uh, it was a holy dance, I suppose. It was led by Miriam as they sang a song that Moses wrote. Uh, and uh, I, Moses said, and I can I paraphrase that song, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he is hurled into the sea, majestic in, in holiness and awesome in glory. A wonder-working God, Jehovah is his name. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You can feel the energy of that. And Miriam led the singing and they danced. This too was a display of worship. But the second song and dance routine that took place in the Bible took place at Mount Sinai where they had most recently experienced that pinnacle moment 
of worship in God's presence. And Moses was up on the mountain, as you know, and they got a little anxious about what might have become of him. And then there was the episode around the golden calf. And guess who was leading involved in that? Miriam was involved again. And there was nothing about it that was worship, at least not worship of God. So we see display in worship. One display was a bowed head and a very reverent spirit. The other was singing. By the way, the song in, in uh, Exodus 15 is the first place singing is mentioned in the Bible as worship. Singing and dancing, they were expressing worship to God. But again, the second time they, get it, they did it, it was not worship at all. Well, down through the years, I've seen many people display their worship. And what I mean by that is through some outward act. And I suppose the most notable worship today uh, is the lifted hand. And maybe I'm getting a little ahead, so yeah, don't go to that yet. I'm, 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 not, I'm not there yet, but we'll go to lifted hand in just a minute. I'll never forget a disciple now we had when I was pastor at Hamilton. A BSU group, and I won't say the college from where they came, uh, a BSU group came in to help us and to lead the disciple now. And on this particular night, as the speaker was speaking, he did an outstanding job of, 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 of talking to the kids and, and gaining their attention. And when we had the invitation in, one of the leaders who had come with the BSU group, now our church, and some of you had been there, we had five sections of pews. It was a fan-shaped sanctuary 75 yards across from back door to back door. And out in one of those aisles, right in the middle of everybody, one of those student leaders got out and he began to dance. He had, I called him a sock head. He had something on his head. I don't know what it was, but it was, and he began to swing his head back and forth dancing, and he called it worship. But I want to tell you what. Not one of those kids worshipped the Lord that night because all of their attention was drawn away and all of the attention was on him. That's all they saw. And that was wrong. That's not the right kind of display in worship. I realize that, that churches uh, have a variety of worship styles. I also understand that people have a variety of worship styles. I have no problem with whatever worship you choose to use, but I want to give you some guidelines on what I see as appropriate display in worship from a biblical context. The reason I bring this individual's dance up is to show you the contrast between appropriate display and inappropriate. For instance, Miriam's dancing was appropriate when they were singing to the Lord after they came across the Red Sea, but later when Miriam was in the crowd singing and dancing around the golden calf and calling it worship, it was not, at least it was not, worshiping the Lord. Now here we have this next point. Display in worship is all a matter of the heart and its motives. A heart with an appropriate motive will never touch God's glory in an act of worship. It will never draw attention to itself. It will always direct its attention to God. Let me talk to you about now about one of the most common displays in worship in recent years, and that is the lifted hand. That is a contemporary display 
of worship. I have no problem with you raising your hands as an expression of worship. And you should have no problem with me not raising mine. And if I should choose to raise mine, you will know that I am moved to an expression that reflects the overflow of my heart and not a desire to identify with somebody else who's expressing their worship. Let me give you another example. Some years ago uh, in our church at Hamilton, I was watching one of our worship leaders on stage. We had a praise team and, and worship leaders. He was a member of the praise team at the time, and whenever he was on stage, his worship was so vivid, so expressive when he would sing, and, and he would bow his head and raise his hands, and he was all over the place on the stage singing. But I began to notice uh, that when he was not on the stage and that he was simply a member of the congregation, that he would often just have his arms folded and not sing at all, but look around with a scowl on his face at other people and how they were expressing themselves. And so there was not a corresponding display. There was no heart. There was no passion. His display, I recognized then, on the stage was not for God to see. It was for us to see. Such a display is a performance, and it has no place in worship. Now, I wonder how many people who raise their hands in a worship service raise their hands in their prayer closet when no one is looking. And how many of those people who dance in a worship service dance before the Lord in their own bedroom? And how many of you worship in private with the same passion that you worship in public? And I hope we do it in private a little more passionately than we do it in here. I'd be willing to propose that few of those who raise their hands in worship in a worship service do so when they are alone, but I would also say that there are many who worship passionately in the closet whose worship is restrained in public, not because they're afraid to offer their allegiance to God publicly, but they dare not touch that which belongs to Him and Him alone, and that is His glory. Here's the next point. I feel that a true experience with God is beyond an, ex an appropriate expression, that it is so beyond expression that in Scripture, the only adequate response for someone who felt they were in God's presence was to fall on their face and hide from His holiness. Moses did, Joshua did, David did, Daniel did, the priest did at the dedication of the temple in the time of Solomon. Peter did, Paul did, John did. They practiced shaka worship, which seems to be the supreme display of worship in Scripture. Shaka worship. There's no right posture in worship. Some can't dance. Some have no hands to lift. Some have knees that won't allow them to kneel. The posture that counts is the posture of the heart. If the heart is humble and contrite before God, then God is pleased. If the heart sings, then the tongue will make a joyful noise. And if there is no song in the heart, there will be no song for God on the tongue. Now, here's the next question. What will happen in a church when that congregation comes to a genuine realization of the presence of the Lord? That's an interesting question. That's an interesting question. 
Because what happens a lot of times in worship is people are posturing to say, the Lord is present here. Or they are posturing to say, I am worshiping the Lord. And oftentimes, and I'm just talking about, I've moved from shaka, of course, to singing and dancing, which we do singing, we don't do dancing. There's a reason for that, and the guy in the middle of the aisle is the reason for that, uh, that I was telling you about. And, and some people lift their hands, and, and that's okay. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But what happens when a congregation genuinely experiences God's presence? Well, we look at the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And the Lord said, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, that is a wonderful promise. But the next verses say, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Now, God abhors hypocrisy. And the worst kind of hypocrisy we can offer is to say we have seen the Lord when we've not. The worst kind of hypocrisy is to raise our hands in a display of surrender when we've not surrendered. A, a, a true experience with God will expose the deepest recesses of the heart, the dark places, the secret places, our hidden thoughts, our secret sins. David said in Psalm 90, verse 8, You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So if I come in here in the sanctuary and the Lord is here and I recognize his presence and I have all of this secret sin in my life, what am I going to do with it? Am I going to raise my hands and say, oh Lord, you know, this is your house, this is your temple. Jeremiah said they did that, you know, uh, and he said, don't do that. He said, don't say this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord. Uh, because God was not pleased with them. Something needed to happen in their lives. When the Lord makes his presence known in our midst, he's going to deal with those issues in our lives. In the book of Psalms, in Psalm 24, verse, beginning in verse 6, David wrote, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him. God's people have nothing to celebrate. Uh, singing or dancing or lifting our hands, we have nothing to celebrate until we have dealt with those areas in our life and responded to the call of the Spirit to come to repentance. Now, here's the question. Does God want us to lift our hands in worship? Now, this is something we need to consider, probably a good thing that we do. 
I'm not against lifting hands, by the way. Please don't say that I am. If you want to lift your hands, that's fine. Just understand that in the New Testament, there is only one direction about lifting hands in worship. Only one. And it comes in the context of prayer. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul said, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. It's mentioned in the context of prayer. I have a missionary friend who always prays. He's a retired missionary. He always prays with an uplifted hand. His name is Tom Thurmond. Whenever he prays, he raises that hand, and it never ceases me ceases to humble me to the dust when he raises that hand and begins to pray. But what touches me most about that is that he is the incarnation of this verse. His hands are holy and his heart is holy. And whenever people are in his presence and he raises his hand up, their heads go down. They bow their heads. David always expressed the lifting of hands in the context of prayer. That's how he used it. Psalm 141 verse 2, May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. And so one of the things that we think about when we are displaying our worship, should I choose in some way to lift my hands in worship, are the hands that I lift and the heart that lifts them pleasing to the Lord. If not, leave them down. God is not honored by lifted hands when my heart is not clean. And we need to understand that. David cried in Psalm 28, verse 2, Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help, when I lift my hands towards your holy sanctuary. Again, here in the Old Testament, we see that the lifting of hands is in the context of prayer. And in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15, the Lord said, So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen to you. So there are certainly times when we can lift our hands if we're lifting our hands uh, as an expression of a cry to help to God. There is only one time when lifted hands appear to be an act of worship rather than an act of prayer, and that's in the book of Nehemiah. When Ezra was about to open the word of God, it's an expression of submission. In Nehemiah 8.6, then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Shaka, worship. This was not, this was worship. The raised hand can be an expression of of deep need, or it can be an expression of submission to God. But never in all of Scripture were people prompted to raise their hands by men. Raise your hands now up and praise the Lord. That's not scriptural. There's only one place that it appears to be. It's in, one, in Psalm 134, but even then it appears to be in the context of prayer. I'll let you read those verses later. Psalm 134 Verses 1 through 3. Lifted hands. I had a little, my baby daughter, when she was little, I would come and I'd say, Leanne, you want daddy to hold you? 
You want daddy to hold you? You've done that with your kids. And when she would come up to me as a toddler, she would lift up her hands and she would say, hold you. That's the way she said it. Hold you. That's lifted hands to the Lord. Hold you. Hold me. It's not a mosh pit like at a music rock concert. God, I need you. I need you to hold me. I need you. Oh, I need you. Well, in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 40 through 42, let us examine our ways and test them and let us return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, we have sinned and rebelled and you have not forgiven. One translation reads, let us lift up our heart with our hands. It's an expression of repentance, an expression of longing for God, not display for the sake of display and always at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Should the Holy Spirit prompt a lifted hand, the hand should be lifted. Should the Holy Spirit prompt a lifted hand saying, God, I need you, the hand should be lifted. But even then, the hand should be lifted in repentance, realizing that these hands aren't always holy, and it might be a better thing indeed after that to practice shaka worship following the lifted hand. Finally, an appropriate display of worship honors God and inspires worship in the hearts of others. In 1997, our church in Camden was experiencing an unusual time of refreshing, and there were two, two things at work. First, our church was in, the second, in its second cycle of experiencing God, and uh, people were adjusting their lives to God. They were being sensitive and obedient to God. The second thing that was happening that was unusual is that God was at work here and there in the life of some individuals and there was one man in particular one man in particular in whose life God was stirring not so long before God began to stir in his heart his heart was as cold as a stone but things were different he had been making some adjustments in his life and he said he missed the cycle of experiencing God and on his own he was going through experiencing God. And one Sunday morning during our worship service, we were, we were singing, Brother Doug, uh, you, are, you are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension, like nothing ever seen or heard. Who could grasp your infinite wisdom? Who could fathom your whatever wonderful love uh what is the what are the next words majesty beyond description uh enthroned above i stand i stand in awe of you i stand i stand in awe of you holy god to whom all praise is due i stand in awe of you the whole congregation was seated as we were singing that song and this man whose heart has been, had been as cold as a stone, silently, reverently, quietly, prayerfully, in the middle of that song, stood up and just stood there. 
The congregation continued to sing through the song. He continued to stand right by himself, not wanting to draw any attention to himself, simply in honor and worship of his Lord, he stood. And then after a moment while we were singing, somebody else way on the other side of the sanctuary stood, and then another and another until before the song was finished, the whole congregation was standing, and it was a very reserved congregation, uh, and they were not know, known for doing that. His display prompted others to worship. Now, there's a time for display in worship, but it should never draw attention to you or take away from the Lord offered appropriately, humbly, and reverently. It will inspire worship in the hearts of others. <laughs> 